the meal that we're looking at tonight takes place at the house of a prominent Jewish religious leader. And it almost certainly happens after synagogue worship on a Saturday, the Jewish day of rest. And it, it's, it's not a meal like we're used to. So it has a very different feel to it. And, and quite probably, none of us have ever been to a meal quite like this. Uh, mostly because Jesus was being so carefully watched. I guess the, the closest equivalent might be, certainly as a parent I can now say this, is the time that either one of our son or sons or one of our daughters, when a girlfriend or boyfriend comes round for the first time and eats with us. And everyone around the table knows that the only thing that has really been thought about through that meal is how suitable is she or he for so-and-so and so-and-so. And so so that's maybe a little bit of a vibe about what's going on here, that there is a sense about everybody in the room is evaluating the guests. And it's not necessarily that friendly. The first time I ever had a meal with my now wife, Naomi's family, they basically pulled a massive stunt on me in that they, they, they all were all brought up in Thailand and they snuggled uh, some extra hot, very small Thai chilies in, into my portion. And I was just this, like this poor, simple little boy from Bristol that hadn't ever really eaten chilies before. And, 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 they, and so Matthew and Sarah and Naomi's brother and sister just sat back and watched as I pretty much died at the table. <laughs> But of course, I was, tr- I was trying to, to just exude this sense of confidence and being in control, uh, but failing dismally as tears were running down my cheeks, steam was coming out of my ears, my cheeks were bright red. Uh, I thought the relationship was all over. Uh, but there we go. But this is a meal at which Jesus has been carefully watched. He's not invited like as a welcome guest or someone who's worthy of respect. I guess most of the people that, that you invite around would fit into the, that category. They're family, they're people that you know well, they're people that you like. Jesus is being examined. And the reason is he, he's been examined is that he has no formal training, and yet he's very clearly uh, has a huge following, has undeniable charisma, speaks with unbelievable authority and clarity and performs these amazing deeds. And everybody is saying, this must be of God. But the religious leaders aren't really convinced, and so they are there to evaluate, to test, because they sense him more as a threat than as a blessing. The second thing to say is that meals in Jesus' culture were much more public than we are used to in cold quite a lot of the year Britain. So especially in wealthier homes, meals were semi-public events. And so our nearest equivalent wouldn't, necess- wouldn't I don't think, be a meal in one of our homes, but it would, might be a meal at a restaurant. And if you go to a meal at a restaurant, you can potentially expect some drama to unfold while you're there. So it might be that as you sit down, you notice that two tables away is a fascinating B-list celebrity. 
And so you spend most of the meal not having any conversation between the two of you, but trying to eavesdrop on what is being said at two tables away. Or suddenly, somebody drops to one knee and makes a, a marriage proposal. Or, more exciting maybe, there's a massive bust-up between a couple or a family. Or someone is taken ill. But you can, sort of, you can expect, potentially, some drama to unfold at a meal when you go out. Whereas at home, normally, you've got some sense of control about your environment and what's going on. So, this meal is different. It's not informal, it's not laughing, it's not fun, it's tense, and it's best behavior. And there are some wider conflicts that have been going on between Jesus on one hand, Pharisees and religious leaders on the other hand. These are all swirling around in the background. And in verse 2, Luke tells us that included in the crowd, almost certainly not actually an invited guest, but somebody that just sort of went along to view and see what was happening, was a man uh, who had some sort of medical condition. We're not quite sure what it was. It seems to be some sort of swelling uh, or maybe through excessive fluids. Uh, There is some evidence that the, the, the religious leaders of the day thought that that particular condition was a sign that you'd done something wrong. So that their theology works something like you know, certain conditions, certain types of illness, uh, the reason that you got it was because you hadn't lived in a godly way. And if that was the case, then this person would have felt even more sort of uncomfortable and unwelcome uh, around that table. You may already know that uh, Jesus healing people on the Sabbath the Jewish day of rest, uh, was already a contested area between Jesus and the religious leaders. And Jesus seemed to not, he didn't dodge this, he didn't sort of try and appease them, but he seemed to court controversy with them by publicly healing people on the Sabbath, and that, uh, that enraged the religious leaders who took observing the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath holy. They took that very seriously, but they saw it as a test of orthodoxy. And they managed to do it in a way that kind of squeezed the life out of the Sabbath. So instead of it being a day of rest, a day of worship, a day of recreation, it became a day of not doing certain things. And for them... What you did on the Sabbath was like a gateway issue to a deeper debate, uh, which is all about the basis on which we can say that we are right with God, that we are okay with God. So as the meal starts, Jesus knows what's going on. He sees this man who is ill, and so he just asks out of the blue, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So he, he hits the question head on with a deeply divisive either-or question. Now, as Christians, we, Christians love asking either-or questions. Uh, we're not ever quite so keen on answering them, but we do like them. We see in Jesus here this kind of quiet strength and determination, a, a strength that, out of compassion for this man, overrules any duty of respect for his hosts and his surroundings. Because what the religious leaders have done is they've sort of, they've painted themselves into a corner where they're now saying it would be wrong 
for Jesus to heal a man on the Sabbath. And, and they, you almost get the sense that they didn't really want to end up there, but that's what they've ended up saying, that they, that they don't want someone to be healed just because it's the Sabbath, a day of rest. And Jesus wants to really push into that and just say, that cannot be what God intended when he gave us the gift of the Sabbath, the gift of a day of rest and worship and recreation. And the dinner party goes very quiet. All of the air is sucked out of the room when Jesus asks this question. No one speaks. Nobody is willing to say it is against the law to heal on the Sabbath because they know that sort of sounds ridiculous even though that's really what they're thinking. And they probably had an inkling of what was going to come next that Jesus was going to heal this man, which Jesus does. And he heals him tenderly and authoritatively and curiously sending him on his way, so sparing him the rest of this embarrassing dinner party. And Jesus then follows this up with a further skewering of the watching, doubting guests. Jesus confronts them with their own hypocrisy by observing that if one of their kids or one of their livestock fell into a well on the Sabbath day, they would not hesitate in pulling them out. They wouldn't debate it. They wouldn't pray about it. They would simply think, that's a well. That's my child. That is not a good place for my child to be. Let's get the child out. And Jesus is saying, look, here is this man, made in God's image, loved and valued. Why would I refrain on this holy day of all days. Why would I refrain from offering this person healing and compassion? It makes no sense. And again, for the second time, there is silence. Now, it wasn't the spontaneous silence. You know, I love the silence that sometimes descends on a meal table as everybody Everyone's hungry, and everyone, the food is served, and then for about 25 or 30 seconds, there's absolute silence as everyone just tucks in because they're really enjoying it. It's not that kind of silence, nor is it the grateful silence at the end of the meal when everybody pushes back their plate and thinks, oh, I have just had such a fantastic meal. I am now absolutely full, possibly over full, but what a fan, and just kind of sits and enjoys what they've had. This is the deeply uncomfortable silence of embarrassment, of being made to feel petty and being made to feel stupid. And this is a really good reminder about what being in Jesus' presence brings. There will be moments of praise and wonder and thanksgiving. Think about the woman we were thinking about a few weeks ago who anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and with her perfume, that beautiful, private, intimate moment that she has. But even she had had to face her own past and her own brokenness. Or there will be moments of beauty and clarity and wonder. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be thinking about the, the Last Supper. But even then, we might be quick to squabble or be concealing, as Judas was, the heart of a traitor. And if we are Jesus' friends and disciples, there will be moments of confrontation 
as there were here. When Jesus challenges head-on, cherished and familiar ideas from our cultures, our families, our backgrounds, ideas that simply don't have a place in his kingdom. And when we are confronted, as the religious leaders were here, we might be cross, or we might be perplexed, or we might simply feel quiet and uncomfortable. That's okay. Now, to be honest, none of us really, really, deep down, wants a a life of discipleship that is all about having happy feelings and having all of our long-cherished beliefs affirmed. We know We know that if this matters as much as we believe it does, God is going to challenge us and unsettle us and move us on. And that is part of being his disciples. And so, of course, one of the most important things is that we do this together in community. Here in church services at Alpha, where we break that down in smaller groups, in our small groups, in prayer triplets, this passage acts as a reminder that it is highly unlikely that we will dine with Jesus throughout our lives and not find that there are questions that he asks and presuppositions that he challenges that reduce us to silent, sometimes embarrassed, sometimes angry reflection. But that is okay. That is how it is. And Luke, in his gospel, uses two big pictures of what it means to live the Christian life. One is the journey, traveling, getting somewhere. The second is the meal, the feast, the banquet. And we should not expect all of the meals that we share with Jesus to be utterly comfortable and utterly warm. Sometimes there will be discomfort There will be challenge, and we love him the more for it. There are two final parts to this passage that we will look at briefly. At first sight, they may look less substantial than what we've just looked at. The first, the middle part of that passage uh, that was read for us seems to be, at first sight, some advice about choosing a seat at an important social occasion. You think, well, Jesus, I could live with or without that, really. Uh, I don't go to many important social occasions, and I can't believe it's that important that I do know how to behave at an important social occasion. Uh, The second bit, the last part of the passage, uh, concerns who makes it onto your guest list and to on our guest list as a church. Luke calls Jesus' comments on places of honor, and who gets them, and who goes for them. He calls them a parable. So Luke does not see this as a handy piece of social advice to save us from embarrassment. As we have literally just seen, do not look to Jesus to be saved from embarrassment. He seems to love embarrassment. He nourishes it. He cultures it. He is completely willing to make other people uncomfortable and embarrassed in important social occasions. He is happy in love to cause embarrassment in spades. So Jesus is not the guy to go to if you want to live an embarrassment-free life. 
But Jesus does use our appreciation for the potential embarrassment of a high-end social occasion to teach a deeper truth. And it's actually not very hard for us. Sometimes the world of the first century in the Bible seems like a thousand miles away. This actually feels quite close. The weddings in those days were not actually that different to weddings nowadays. And Jesus' cunning parable is dressed up as social etiquette, but it actually translates very easy indeed. Imagine the scene. Most of you will have been to a wedding. Maybe not all of you, but if you haven't been to a wedding, uh, you've probably at least seen one uh, on, the, on, uh, on the telly or in a film. So it's a wedding. You arrive at the wedding, and you spot two seats at the top table. So at most weddings, there's like a top table like would be up here, and that's where the bridal party sits, so the bride and the groom sit together. Then normally it's like parents and maybe a bridesmaid and a best man, and they would sort of sit at the top table so everyone could see them. Sometimes it's literally like this, kind of raised up, so it's a bit higher, but it's in the most important place. And to sit there at a wedding is a big deal to be sat at the top table. So imagine you arrive at this wedding and you spot two spare seats at the top table. Now, you know, because you've been to weddings before, that tradition says those are for people in the bridal party. But you think to yourself, well, I've spent a lot of money on what I'm wearing and I'm well-known and I'm I'm a long-term family friend and so... Why shouldn't I go and take the seat at the top table? I deserve it as much as anybody else. And so bypassing the seating plan, you march confidently past all the other guests and you enjoy a momentary surge of pride. And even better, you enjoy the fact that you think that other people in the room are admiring you and are envious of the fact that you, amongst all the guests, have been chosen to sit at the top table. How important you are, you say to yourself. And you sit down at the top table to survey the scene. This is where you belong. And then you think, oh, here comes the father of the bride, no doubt to welcome us on this important occasion. But as the father of the bride leans in to whisper, you sense that something is wrong. And the father of the bride says, thank you so much for coming, but I'm afraid these seats are for my mum and dad. My my mum's just gone to the loo. We've put you on table 13. It's it's right at the back. It's the one behind the pillar. Here come mum and dad. Would you mind going to take your place? And so now you have to get up. You have to retrieve your coat. You have to avoid all eye contact with everybody in the room. You have to push past the very same people before taking your seats on table 13 with some very bored teenage cousins of the groom, knowing that every single person in the room, because this is England, is secretly delighted at your humiliation, at your comeuppance. They are just feeling that golden glow of those people have just been taken down many pegs. It is the best thing about the whole day. This is deliberate farce on Jesus' part. He's not giving us good social advice. He's having a laugh. There aren't any of us, I think, 
in the world, maybe, apart from Donald Trump, maybe, who would confidently walk into a room and usurp the top table at a wedding. That's the whole point. Jesus uses the ridiculous presumption of the story to remind ourselves of something really simple. Don't big ourselves up. It's God's job to raise us up. It's God's job to fill us with grace and power. It's God's responsibility as to whether we are recognized and lauded and praised or whether we are overlooked. That is all God's job, not our job. And it fits with a lot of things that Jesus says elsewhere. He warns us as disciples. He says, don't seek the positions of power don't seek the positions of prestige. We as people have this deep need to feel superior, to feel better than all the rest. And we can use many different ideas and theories and experiences to comfort ourselves with the thought that we are better than the rest. And it turns out one of Jesus' great insights is that religious ideas, particularly keeping to certain outward lifestyle rules or being strong on who's in and who's out, keeping religious ideas are really powerful, successful ways to stand out in the crowd and to make ourselves feel better than all the others. But Jesus says, look, friends, they're just hot air. They're hot air that's going to deflate and leave us humiliated. Let's be clear. Jesus is not saying, hate yourself, put yourself down. But Jesus is saying, friends, check your ego at the door. Or put it another way, Billy Big Heads, don't go far in the kingdom of God. Or put it another way, choose humility. Choose the way of unassuming smallness as much as you can. And let God do the raising up. He will raise all of us up on the last day. Some of us will enjoy power and prestige and influence and respect. Some of us won't. And most of us will be sat somewhere in the middle. But this is through the farce, the ridiculous story that he tells. He just wants to remind us, let's not spend all of our time and our effort trying to impress others and trying to tell the world how good we are compared with them. Walk in humility. Let God do the lifting. The last verses in this passage are outwardly straightforward, but they still are perplexing. And frankly, they are very easily ignored. Now, I have no idea how your social diary uh, works. Uh, some people's social diaries are painstakingly planned and others are largely spontaneous. But that's where these verses fit at the time when you're planning your hospitality and your generosity. If we only, if we only invite our existing friends and family or well-to-do neighbors to share our lives and our good fortune, we have missed the point. Throwing lavish parties isn't actually generous 
if we see them simply as a down payment, i.e., I pay for a lavish party this month, my, all the friends who I invite then invite me to lavish parties for the next year. Or lavish parties aren't actually generous if we only see them as a way of cementing our place in the community, as a way of earning respect, as a way of polishing our prestige. Real generosity, Jesus says, and of course he shows it so often, and he says it so often, is giving lavishly to people who are overlooked and forgotten. People who can't invite you back. They can't pay you back. They can't make it worth your while. They can't make you look good. Now, we are absolutely right to conclude that this is not Jesus saying, don't invite your friends round for dinner. Please hear me. This isn't Jesus saying, don't invite your friends round for dinner, because Jesus seemed to be doing that endlessly. But it is, in a very Aramaic, in a very Jewish way, Jesus saying, yes, if, if you're inviting and your generosity and your hospitality is only about cementing your place in the world, is only about uh, getting return matches uh, for your hospitality and your, and your generosity, then it isn't really generosity. It's something else entirely. And this does challenge us. This challenges us individually. It challenges us in our family groups and our friendship groups. And it also challenges us as a whole church. If everything we do, individually, family, friendship, whole church, if everything we do is for our tribe and for our people, if everything we do is all about keeping up with the wonderful Joneses, we're not doing it for Jesus. We're doing it for ourselves. And so we want to heed what Jesus says here. We want to remain and we want to become even more a church where the overlooked and the forgotten, where they, whether they are near, like in our immediate community, or whether they are far in some of the places where we have these beautiful, wonderful links in the world, we want to become even more a church where the overlooked and the overforgotten have the best seats in the house. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we aim to do in a whole host of ways. And so we need to be challenged to our very cause that we are happy, that we are content simply to let God do the raising up. Not to waste all this effort in doing it for ourselves and trying to climb above the rest. And instead, devote ourselves in loving service to others. Not wanting payback. Not wanting recognition. But simply saying, we follow in humility the king of humility who spent his life reaching out to those with little or less. And wouldn't it be wonderful if that continued to be part of our church ethos and vibe, that we were known near and far as the place of lavish, generous welcome and hospitality 
not just to the people that look like us, sound like us, act like us, but to everybody. Amen.